Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. Okay, so the Brahma Viharas translate directly into divine abodes. So I want to talk a little bit about what they are in general, and then we'll talk about what they, the actual four Brahma Viharas. So if you imagine, what, what would that feel like, divine abode, to live, to live in a place, to come home to a place which feels divine, right? What, what would that mean for you? For me, that means it's the best, most open, most loving version of myself and if I can come home to that whenever things get rocky because they will when I'm not home then I know that it's always this kind of spacious place that I can come back to so divine abodes that's one translation of Brahma Vihara another way that people like to call Brahma Viharas is heart practice which seems kind of like a simple way to think about it, right? It's an actual practice that we practice. We train ourselves in these heart qualities. And they're heart, they're heart opening. So a lot of people, when they come to Buddhist practice, and I definitely did, I was super heady about it, right? I was like, okay, learn the things, read the books, take the notes. And I was already pretty heady in my life. And I don't think I really realized how much my heart needed attention until I really started practicing and became exposed to metta, one of the Brahma Viharas. And so then that started to bring this consciousness to head, at first it was head versus heart, and then it became head and heart. Because it was kind of like this artificial division to be like, well, I only think these things, but I feel these things, and when is it this and when is it that? It all just kind of became blended, which is actually the concept of bodhicitta, which just means awakened heart, mind, heart, mind. So heart practice is really a great way to think of practices that nurture your heart, this natural opening of the heart that sometimes just gets blocked over by this or by things out there or just by stuff that's happening in the world. The Brahmaviharas are also known as the four immeasurables. And that brings another element to it, immeasurable. You can't measure it. It's boundless. Right? So we live in these bodies. We live in this relative world. But there's also an aspect of us and the world, which is absolute, boundless, infinite. We're all part of this fabric that isn't podium or wood or skin or bones or Jennifer. We're just all part of this universe and these little particles and then beyond the physical particles. And so these practices help us, immeasurable practices, heart practices, to open up to really experiencing in our bodies this lack of separation, right? The skin feels like a separation, but is it really? Aren't the other elements out there made up of the same things that my skin is made up of? So when I practice Brahma Viharas, 
I really do start to engage in the sense of me, them, me, them. Oh, it's all the same. Heart, mind, heart, mind. Oh, it's all the same. So those are the Brahma Viharas as an overview. For those of you who haven't been here for the other sessions. And the actual four Brahma Viharas are metta. And when I'm using these words, these are words in Pali, and sometimes they're the same in Sanskrit. Pali is the language that was spoken at the time of the Buddha, like the actual spoken language, whereas the Sanskrit was like the written, um, more like academic language. So metta, loving kindness, wishing well, goodwill for others. Karuna, compassion, so bringing that kind of goodwill to pain, suffering. Mudita, sympathetic joy, bringing that goodwill to joy. And then Upeka, equanimity, which is what we'll talk about today more. And as Andrew was saying, Upeka, equanimity, tends to be on a lot of Buddhist lists. Um, so the Buddha liked to teach in lists, and his disciples liked to use lists to remember what he taught about, just kind of because it's easy to remember. <laughs> I'm sure there's other reasons why. Um, and oftentimes you'll find Upeka at the, the last item on a lot of these lists. And for me, I love it because it, it does really represent the beginning and the end, but it like holds all of it. It's what makes all of it doable and livable and um, doesn't put me over the edge one way or the other. It just holds space. I love space. I love the concept of space. It holds space. So some might ask, why is equanimity a heart practice. Why is it a heart opening practice? And some people, when they think of equanimity, could think that it's about detachment, right? Like separating your heart from what's out there so that you don't get hurt, so that you don't get lost in whatever rabbit hole is going on around you. Okay, so why is it a heart practice? Why isn't it not just a detachment practice? And I was thinking about this the other day, and I was like, you know what? A lot of times when people think of love, heart, especially in this world that where Hollywood dominates a lot of things, they think of it as, oh, I want to strengthen my love. I want to strengthen my heart towards this person. I want to become a better parent. I want to become a better partner, a better whatever it is. I want to strengthen this love bond between us. And it's very directed, right? I kept going back to the stuff I was reading and thinking and learning, and no, there was never any reading or, or teaching about, you know, we want to make you a better friend, family member. It was about opening of the heart. And when I think of what it means to open the heart, I'm opening the heart to more and more humans, non-humans, family, friends, strangers. And even all of the practices, if you guys have been doing the four Brahma Vihara practices, right? They start, often they start with yourself, someone who is dear to you, where it's easy to feel loving kindness or compassion or joy for. They go to a neutral person, they go to a difficult person, and then they go to all beings. So we're already practicing this opening with the Brahma Vihara practices. And so what equanimity allows us to do is just open even more and to share our heart 
with all beings without bias. It's not this directed like, you must take my love or I must give you my love. It's, okay, what more can I bring under the umbrella? Because remember again, me, you, that's like, it's relative, but in the absolute, it's not a real thing. So it's an opening, heart opening practice. It's about caring about everything without bias, without distinction. It's boundless. It also, this equanimity practice and all the Brahma Vihara practices help release us from clinging or craving, right? A lot of times people think of love and they associate it with ownership or craving or I want more, I want to give more, take it, right? There's, I want, like, where's, I need this love, I need this compassion. And so this equanimity practice helps to provide the space to kind of see the clinging and to say, okay, does that actually feel good for me? Is that actually opening my heart more or is it tightening my heart and my body, right? Like when you're clinging, and clinging to me also means I want, but get away from me as well. It's clinging in the opposite direction. Like my body feels really tight and small when I start to go into clinging mode, even if it's in like a love situation. So this equanimity practice helps us release from clinging. And so a lot of times, as I was saying, a lot of people think about equanimity practice as like cold, detached, um, like you're in this world and everything's fine. It's all fine, right? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's not about not worrying about things. I was mentioning it's about caring. It's just caring about everything without distinction. And so if we think about the Brahma Viharas, equanimity is this balancing factor for the other three Brahma Viharas. So if we think about metta, loving kindness, this wish for others to be well, to send goodwill to others, the potential danger, the near enemy of metta could be like getting too invested, right? Or it could be getting like sentimental or sappy. Or again, that clinging to, I really need you to be well here. <laughs> like, take it, take it, take the well-being. And so what equanimity does is it helps to create that balance because, you know, no matter how much I may wish for you to be well, I have no control over whether you're well. So this practice helps to, just helps notice, are we being super sappy, sentimental, almost forceful clinging with the metta? And then the opposite is true of karuna, with compassion. You know, bringing this well, wish for well-being to suffering. Have you ever been in a situation where you're trying to help someone who's suffering and you just find yourself like getting drawn in more and more, almost like you're in the pit of quicksand with them. And before you know it, you're stuck. You're stuck in that hole with them, the hole of suffering. And so what equanimity helps us to do is to say, oh, wait a second. I know that the suffering is there. I don't need to jump in with it. And this is what our mindfulness practice does too, right? Like, oh, I see a thought coming. I don't need to get involved. I can just notice it and let it go. So with compassion, with suffering, okay, I don't need to jump in. And I know that the suffering is going to come and it's going to be there and it's going to go. 
And so with that wisdom, my equanimity allows me to kind of stay on my seat. Sometimes people like to think about it like staying in the saddle when you're riding a horse. Like you just, yeah, the horse might buck, the horse might go, make you shift all over the place, but you can stay in your seat, in your saddle. So that's karuna. And then the balancing factor for sympathetic joy, mudita, is you know the opposite of compassion. Sometimes you can just get like really lost in the bliss, right? Like you forget everything that's around you. This is amazing. I'm like totally lost. Like it's like I'm in Disneyland. Everything's amazing. Nothing could, could, could go wrong. And then the clinging starts to come in. Oh, how am I going to make this last? And there's that suffering that comes with clinging again because doesn't that feel a little like yucky when you're like in something that you love and then you start feeling like you're like trying to hold on to it? And so equanimity again reminds us, okay, this isn't gonna last. I can enjoy it and be with it so much while it's here, but I know it's not gonna last. And I know that just like the podium and the skin, that it's made up of all these things that have come together to create this joy. And they could come together in a different form later on. But for now, this form, I can love, I can enjoy, and I can let go. So equanimity is a balancing factor to Medita as well. And it's not just that equanimity is a balancing factor to all of them. They all balance each other as well. We just happen to be talking about equanimity today, and it is a balancing factor in a lot of these other lists too. So it just, it holds space. Holds space for it all. Yeah, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, two of the things that Jennifer's reflecting on. One is the spaciousness and also the lack of control that we're aiming to practice with equanimity. You know, if we dive into the deep end of um, how do we cultivate, how do we develop equanimity, you know, because the Buddhist teachings are much different, I think, than we're used to interfacing with spiritual and religious traditions in that they're really invitations for cultivation, for the development of these capacities that are innate, that we have, but that we can access, that we can grow. I really like that word cultivate because it's like a, a field. You know, the seed is there, but we need to tend to that seed. And what develops when we do tend to the seed is this space. You know, not feeling so restricted by life, not feeling so constrained, not feeling so pushed and pulled around by, as the, the Chinese Buddhists refer to as the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. In the Buddhist teaching, Maddie had talked about last week the eight worldly winds that we get pushed around by. The Buddha refers to these as pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, status and disgrace. You know, these uh, experiences as we move through the world that just kind of, you know, we're sensitive beings. So as we're sensitive, they, they get into our system and they cause a lot of reactivity if we can't have space to respond I really think of mindfulness as giving us this kind of this response ability. 
you know, this ability to say, oh, this is happening right now. So there's that kind of responsibility, you know, when you like take ownership. And not take personally, but take ownership. Like this is happening right now, this pleasure or this pain or this gain or loss or this up or down that I'm going through. And, and it gives us the opportunity to see it clearly and to respond more wisely to the conditions of our life. And so how do we cultivate it? We'll talk more towards the end, but I'll just say generally, it, it really takes place, I believe, in, in the body. You know, my experience has been is that my nervous system, the way that I'm wired, it hates pain. And it clings to pleasure. I would say it almost demands pleasure. And this ability to be with, I think, is the core component of equanimity. And what a radical thing, actually, to be in a nervous system that wants things to be one way, pleasant, and to be in an other experience, an experience of loss, an experience of pain, an experience of criticism, and to be able to have space for that experience too. And like Jennifer was saying, even with pleasure, with joy, a lot of times it's like, I can't actually enjoy the moment because I'm so afraid of it ending. So now I can also have space for pleasurable experiences without having to hold on. There's a teacher named Shinzen Young uh, who is a very technical teacher which, like Jennifer, I'm a pretty heady person, so I like the, uh, the technical things sometimes. Also, I think it's helpful because it is a technique or a practice that we're cultivating. And he says that the definition of equanimity is, it is an ability to be with the arising and passing of every sensory experience without push or pull. So I just want you all to see that when you practice mindfulness, you're developing, you're cultivating equanimity already, right? Because when you're here and the fire truck goes by and we notice the internal response and we let the response come and go without judging, without needing it to be different, without pushing it this way or pulling into it this way, when we just let that sensory event occur and come and go, we develop this capacity for spaciousness. Right on cue. I, I had to pay them 50 bucks to do that. So equanimity is this capacity. I like to say it's the ability to I'm a big fan of letting it be over letting it go. You know, it's an ability to be with the present experience without getting pulled in, which sometimes Shinzen Young calls it obsession. You know that mental story that kind of grows on top of the experience you're in? There's not really a lot of space once that story starts going. That future story, the, the I need to be, I need to do, 
the what if, the if only, that's getting pulled in. So the thought arises, I don't see the thought arising, and I get pulled into the thought. Or he calls it on the, the flip side is this suppression. You know, this kind of like, you know, maybe this emotional pain that I'm in right now that I don't want to really be with. And so I deny it. I avoid it. I, you know, I don't want to sit with it. And when we're letting things be, there's this spaciousness because we're actually willing to be with it. We're not swept up by it and we're not resisting it. I think equanimity is a very engaged, and Jennifer's going to talk a little bit about this, it's a very engaged practice. It's not a detached process because we're very intimate with what's occurring, but just without this usual form or film of expectation and preference that's usually overlaid onto the experience. Easier said than done, but that's why we practice, right? And um, it also then with this spaciousness in our present experience as we're with more and more moments as they're occurring and we're open to them without push or pull, it allows us to show up into rela- in relationships in the same way. Because I think all of the heart practices are actually relational qualities. How I relate to others is very deeply connected to how I relate to my direct experience. This is one of these insights you start to see with mindfulness over time. If you have some practices, you can start to see is how I relate to my own mind, how I relate to, am I relating with kindness and compassion and non-attached appreciation? If I'm relating to my own heart and mind in this way, I'm going to show up in relationships more in this way. So the less I try to control my thoughts and feelings, or suppress my thoughts and feelings, the less I try to show up or I'm able to show up in relationships with less control. And so we'll talk a little bit about, you know, how sometimes equanimity can get misconstrued, and Jennifer is going to talk a little bit about that. Um. Every year, uh, every year now, it's, every year it started during COVID, so it's been like three years. I make like a annual winter migration back to LA, which is where I'm from and where my family is. So I have young nieces and nephews. They're basically the reason I go back for my little nieces and nephews. Um, but it's challenging to go back. I love those little kids so much, but my parents and my sisters have different, very different values and lifestyles than me. And it's hard. I stay with my parents when I'm there. This time I'm going back for two months. I'm going back next weekend. Um, the first time I went back, I went back for six months. And so living with my parents and then staying with my sister sometimes on the weekends, it's really hard because the difference in values comes through in like the smallest little things. Like we go to the grocery store and I'm like, wait, we just did, you like leave the car in the parking lot, you know, that type of thing. Um, And so now I know, like I'm about to go back, I'm gonna feel things when I'm there with my parents they're going to do things that I just feel like are really contrary to my belief system. And then on the flip side, when I come back home, I live by myself here, 
And when I'm there, I'm surrounded by people constantly because I'm living with them. I, I always feel lonely, right? I'm by myself, I have a dog, but it's just me. There's not someone who's like kind of keeping tabs on me and who I can like tell about like the dumbest things during the day. Like it's not worth it to like call a friend to be like, hey, guess what happened at the grocery store? <laughs> so I know that it's gonna be lonely and it hurts when I come back and it's lonely. With my equanimity practice though, kind of like what Andrew was saying, I let it be. Like I don't try to fill my time. I don't try to go out all the time. I don't try to call everyone up and try to do things to get rid of the loneliness. And this also is also where compassion comes in, karuna, where I'm like, oh, okay, you're lonely right now. This, this is how it is. This, you know this, like this is how it's felt the other times coming back. I felt it at other times in my life. It's okay, it's okay, I know. It's like, I'm here for myself, like caring for myself. But also I know that this loneliness feeling is gonna pass, right? So, you know, some people might say equanimity is like, don't feel the loneliness, just like let it roll off of you. Or tell yourself, again, this is that head thing, tell yourself, it's fine, like they're there, you're here, like you'll see them again, you know, like all the rationalizing that we tend to tell people, at least I do, when I'm trying to like help someone, a friend who's suffering, I try to tell them all the things. Well, they shouldn't have done that, like you were fine, you were in the right, like they're gonna get fired anyways, you know, whatever it is, like trying to rationalize all the things to try to make them feel better. And so this equanimity practice allows me to like just not do that. Like, I don't need to do that. It's not about Pollyanna, everything's going to be fine, don't worry about it. It's not about letting it roll off of you and like, oh, it's not real or trying to fill the hole. It's just about letting be and then offering yourself compassion or offering the situation compassion. Because the reality of it, like this equanimity comes from wisdom. The equanimity comes from knowing, and again, this is head-heart knowing, knowing that everything is impermanent. This is one of the three marks of existence that the Buddha teaches about, another list. The three marks of existence, the three characteristics of existence. Everything that exists in this world, this relative world as we know it, bears these three marks, and one of them is impermanence, anicca. Everything will pass or change or die or go away. Nothing will stay the same. And the next one is anatta, non-self, no self. This is what I was talking about with like, I mean, I think I'm this person called Jennifer, but like, what is this person called Jennifer? Is this person a woman? Is this person an Asian American person? Is this person a Californian? Is this person smart, dumb, whatever? Those are all things that I like made up in my own mind. Really, I'm just like components of things put together that happen to be put together in this form in this moment. And in another moment, they'll be put together in another form. And eventually, they'll go back to the ground. And this being that I am will just be go back to the oneness with everything else. right? So there's not really anything that exists on its own without other things having fed into it. And in the case of my body, physically, like. This doesn't, body doesn't exist without me having fed it with food, drink, thoughts, education, family, people, all the things. Right? So nothing exists on its own. And then the third mark of existence is dukkha, suffering, or dissatisfaction. And this is 
actually a huge relief for me and really kind of helps lead to my equanimity, which is just knowing suffering is just a part of life. Like, I'm not doing it wrong. Like, suffering is just a part of life. This loneliness that's just, that I experience when I come back from LA, this is just a part of life. And sometimes it comes from not acknowledging that things are impermanent and change and not acknowledging that there's no fixed self. A lot of times it comes from those things. Um, but it's just there, it's just a part of life, right? And so when there's loneliness, when there's fear, when there's anger, when there's joy, the 10,000 joys and sorrows, I can just say, oh, this is fear. Okay. Oh, this is loneliness. Oh, this is joy. All right. And remember, all of these things are impermanent. All of these things don't exist in a vacuum. So who knows what's going to happen? You know, I think it's kind of like this, uh, it's a really radical, it's a really subtle thing. You know, the Buddha says that these uh, practices that we're undertaking, he says they're not confined by thought. He says they're sensed by the wise. And he says they're subtle and hard to see. And this practice, it really turns everything that my mind-body system has been conditioned, whether through evolution or society, to believe. Which is that if there is something happening like a loneliness, then it must be something to explain away, to solve. Or that if somehow my mind thinks if it can figure out the source, like if it can find a way to make the loneliness go away, then I will be okay. And then so much of the time we have to realize that then our happiness is always dependent on things being a way that they can't ever permanently be. Because the, I can't find peace when the loneliness is here then. I can only find peace when I'm no longer lonely. You see, so it's a really radical teaching that the Buddha, and I think it's, it's, it's not a, a, it's a sobering practice. It's the unsolvable math problem. I can't explain away this. I can't figure this out. You know, there's not a solution to it. No matter what other, you know, what society may tell us or other religions may tell us or really the people within the religions. I'm not dissing on religions, but, or even Buddhism, you know what I mean? It's a religion. It depends where, you know, so no matter what society tells me, there's no answer, actually. And then there's this relief once you realize that. It's like this kind of the, the first noble truth, right? It's kind of this like, oh, I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to fix the loneliness. Like, I, it's, it's here? Okay, I just be with it. It's a, it's a softer way. You know, it's really an easier path. It's like, if it's here, okay, just be with it. Be open to it. One of my teachers, Ajahn Sachito, says, ask yourself, how is it to be here with it? And what does it need right now? What does it need from you, from your heart right now? 
You know, you notice he didn't say, figure out why it's here. <laughs> or figure out how to get rid of it. And sometimes, even after all these years, my mind gets more, you know, as I learn the Dharma and I practice, my mind kind of learns it too. <laughs> and so sometimes I try to accept things really quickly, like with equanimity, so I can like not feel them anymore. I'm like, well, if I can just accept this and just, okay, I'm going to feel it, you know? <laughs> But it's like, feel it with this subtle aversion of like, if I just let myself, like, yeah, I'm sad, I'm upset, I'm just going to feel it so it goes away. <laughs> but like Jennifer uh, is offering, I love this kind of description of our connection with everything else, is that everything actually has its own life cycle. You know, we're just being asked to not get involved in trying to accelerate or end that life cycle. And equanimity allows us to just be with that feeling for however long it needs. And that sucks, because sometimes it's like, I'd rather you just go the fuck away, loneliness. <laughs> and then I'm with you, and then you come back, and I'm like, well, am I just going to be here open to the loneliness every time it comes? And the answer is, do I have another option <laughs> in reality? No. So we're asked to be intimate with these parts of our experience that we, we a lot of times speak for myself, I don't really want to have anything to do with. But with all escape routes blocked, I feel like I've tried a lot of other things. <laughs> I never wanted to be a meditator when I grew up, you know what I mean? Like I'm here out of necessity. <laughs> like, for me, this is not a badge of honor amongst the people that I'm used to hanging out with, you know what I mean? <laughs> So, with all escape routes blocked, we can be with. And the last thing I want to, you know, just kind of say here uh, as we transition into the practice is, um, you know, the Buddha offers this view. It's a part of the first factor of the Eightfold Path, sometimes translated as wise view. He offers us this, uh, it's really a contemplative exercise, so not a view that you should believe in, but one that you should kind of try to look through to see if it's true. And this is the view of karma. And the view of karma, it has a lot of kind of cultural baggage to it, which I'm not going to go into it, but the basis of this view of karma is that No matter what's occurring in your life, no matter what thought or feeling or experience is unfolding, that ultimately your happiness, your peace and well-being, and, and here the Buddha is talking about our deepest sense of happiness, it's really dependent not so much on what's happening, but our relationship to what's happening. And that each moment, whether we're mindful or not, I'll be the first to admit I'm not always mindful. I get about, you know, if I get a 60% of the day, I'm doing pretty good. You know what I mean? So whether I'm mindful or not, how I relate to what's happening is what's growing. It's what's getting cultivated. If I relate with kindness, the mind is inclining and developing and cultivating this 
capacity for kindness. It's kind of like this momentum builds in the heart and the mind towards and in that direction. And if you catch me in a less mindful moment and I'm responding with uh, anger or not that anger, the emotion is a bad thing, but if I'm reacting from anger, that is building. That lack of tolerance and then that subsequent regret that I usually feel. And then the, you know, that cycle, right? The Buddha says in his teaching on karma that beings are the owners of their actions, the heirs of their actions are supported to their actions and bound to their actions. And he says, whatever we do, we will fall heir to. And what he's talking about here is not, you know, you cut someone off in traffic and someone else cuts you off the next day and that's your karma. (laughs) It's not like this, like, you know, bank account in the sky that's just keeping track, tit for tat of everything you do wrong, right? No, it's that, you know, inner skill, that inner capacity that's getting developed, either the reactivity or that responsibility. So, just to sum this up, the Buddha is saying that our deepest happiness doesn't come from what we get out of life, but how we respond to what we get in life. And it doesn't mean, as Jennifer was saying, that we lay down and just let everything happen, man. Let it all happen with no boundaries or wisdom. And and this is kind of what we're going to talk about next around the practice. But it means that we have to really investigate much closer to see what our response to the present experience is. And one area, as we move into the practice, that is particularly challenging is with people that we love. Hard to practice equanimity. Because if the Buddha is saying that we are the owner of our actions and the heirs of our actions and supported by our actions, what do you do when you get through, you get in a relationship with someone else that has their own actions, their own thoughts and their own feelings and their own behaviors, and I have mine, and we don't always and we don't often line up. And this is where Jennifer talked about, you know, equanimity being the practice of kind of removing control from the situation. Caring for someone, but not carrying the responsibility, not carrying around the control of what their path is or what they do or what they say. And this is really fucking hard, y'all. For some of you all that, I know some of you all are in 12-step recovery and there's a whole program, a whole 12-step program just based on this principle of equanimity, basically. And in particular around how we have to practice this engaged non-attachment from people we love, and it's called Al-Anon. Because when you're around people that are suffering a great deal, we want to alleviate the suffering. And we sometimes think we know what they should do. 
and we sometimes take on the responsibility for them. There are a lot of ways that we accidentally, without knowing it, kind of take on the suffering ourselves. So I want to talk about a couple of these ways, and we'll do the practice. These are just from my personal life. I'm sure there are a lot more. But the three that came up quite easily for me The first is we sometimes kind of take on, so I like to talk about this as like caring for versus carrying. And one of the ways that I carry sometimes other people in relationships is I'll sometimes carry the responsibility of doing things for them. And to be clear, Buddhism is kind of a little bit harder than just saying, like, you should never do things for other people. Because it's not like that, right? Like, sometimes we can do things for other people. And sometimes we overextend ourselves. But it goes deeper and it asks us to look at, like, when I'm carrying the responsibility for other people in my life, what is driving it? What's underneath that carrying? And for me, a lot of times it's this fear that they're not going to do it. And so I need to do it. Because if they don't do it, then I'll have to do more later. So I can somehow kind of circumvent the, you know, the, the yarn from unraveling entirely if I just kind of keep doing things for them. Whether it's, you know, I know parents probably will nod their head to this as like taking care of all the appointments and all of the things. And, you know, I've, I've definitely seen this. So sometimes we kind of carry this weight of responsibility. Sometimes we also carry the emotional weight around. And a couple ways that I've seen this show up for me is I'll sometimes overextend my kind of empathy channel of my heart. It's like someone's really going through a hard time and I want to, and what's usually driving this for me is I, they feel in despair or hopeless or in a really painful place, and I don't want to abandon them in it, so I just keep going into it with them. And what happens is that's not actually very wise because I end up getting kind of, I, I end up feeling despair myself. I end up getting tapped out emotionally. And practicing equanimity is not actually about them. It's not telling them that they need to stop asking me for that or stop you know, wanting me to do these things for them. It's about me learning when I'm at capacity and, and being able to stay engaged but to keep my seat in the saddle. And the third thing is sometimes, I find this one more subtly, this is a probably daily occurrence at the Chapman household for me, is I take on other people's emotions. So I want to have a good day, and we make this plan, and then you know, my wife's upset. And now I'm upset because she's upset because we were supposed to have this good day, and I can't have a good day because she's upset. Right? You see how subtle this kind of happens? Or my daughter gets upset about something, and... You know, sometimes it's like we don't really allot enough space and time for other things to happen in our plans. And when other people have different experiences, it's like 
it's hard to include their experience in the plan. You see what I'm saying? So it's like allowing space for someone to be upset is a really powerful practice. Like, okay, I don't need to fix that or change that for anyone. Like, I can just have compassion and let them be with that experience. And I don't have to become that experience. I don't have to carry it around. So how do we practice this? There is actually a specific type of meditation that we can do that really helps us strengthen this muscle of equanimity around people we love. And what we do and what we'll do here together is in this tradition, we often use phrases. And we picture kind of in our mind's eye. I'm not a very visual person, so sometimes I just try to get the essence of someone. This may be a partner or a friend, someone you care about. And we use these phrases to practice maybe compassion towards them, but we also use this quality of equanimity woven into it. So I might imagine someone in my life that I care about. Maybe this is someone for you that's going through a hard time currently. And if no one comes to mind spontaneously and naturally for that, you can just use anyone you're close to. Because you, anyone that you've kind of been through some up and downs with. And so we hold this person in, in kind of our heart, in our mind, and we offer these phrases. And the phrases I like to use are, I see you. I feel you, I care for you, and I understand that your happiness depends on your own actions and not my wishes for you. So it's this balancing, I care for you and I understand that your happiness is connected to your actions and not my wishes for you. Equanimity is a both and practice. Does that make sense? Okay. So we're going to do a little bit together. If you want to find a way to sit that's comfortable, we'll just do kind of a brief 15 to 20 minute practice together, if that sounds good. And beginning by bringing your attention to the physical sensations of sitting still. Softening the body and letting the body relax into the sensation of gravity, the weight of your hands, the contact of your body against the chair, the cushion. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, and no right or wrong way to be right now.
starting to bring your awareness into the emotional body, the part of you that feels affected by the world you live in. For some of us, this is the center of the chest or the heart center. And taking a moment to imagine as if you could breathe in and out of your own emotional heart. Some of us may wish to place a hand over the heart center just to get a felt sense of that part of the body. Or if you prefer, you can simply breathe in and out of your own emotional heart, just following the breath at the heart center. As you breathe in and breathe out, start to bring to mind someone in your life that you care for. Maybe this is someone that's currently struggling or has been through some difficulties, or someone simply that you're close with and have been through these ups and downs with before. Seeing if it's okay to let this happen somewhat spontaneously. As you bring to mind this being or this person in your life, notice the quality of this person, their face, their eyes, their smile. Notice them in their environment when they're not noticing you, when they're working, when they're walking. And we're just going to repeat these three phrases towards them very slowly. I see you, I feel you, and I care about you. I see you, I feel you. I care about you. Breathing it in and breathing it out, trying on each phrase as you keep your presence focused on this being. I see you. 
feel you. I care about you. I care for you. complete permission to allow your imagination to reflect on the types of struggles and difficulties that this person has faced. And what it's like to just open the heart to include those feelings in your own heart. I see you, I feel you, I care for you. you breathe in and breathe out it's completely natural and normal for the attention to wander just like any other meditation no big deal it's bringing this kind compassionate awareness to the thinking mind I see you I feel you I care for you mind And then simply returning back to this being in your mind's eye, in your heart, in your body, over and over. phrase and I understand that your happiness is connected to your actions and not my wishes for you (coughs) 
I understand that your happiness is connected to your actions and not my wishes for you. is connected to your actions and not my wishes for you. Noticing the response in the heart and the mind with complete curiosity and non-judgment. Not demanding anything out of the practice, just being here for however the practice shows up in the heart and the mind in this moment. I see you. I feel you. care for you and I understand that your happiness is connected to your actions and not my wishes for you. You're free to make your own choices.
even if only momentarily returning over and over to the presence with this being, with this person, even if it's just a moment of noticing what it feels like to see and to feel and to care and to understand this being is on their own path. Now taking a moment to acknowledge and maybe offer a goodbye or a momentary farewell to this being, just to let them know that we appreciate them in the space that they've existed in in our lives. And just to say goodbye for now, to let the image of them fade away. Maybe now just towards yourself, just for this last minute or so, I feel you, I care for you. Just towards yourself, I see you, I feel you, I care for you, and I understand that my happiness is connected to my actions and not my wishes for myself. If it feels authentic for you, just offering some appreciation for this action, this action of the development of equanimity in your heart, just taking a moment to appreciate. I see you, I feel you, I care for you, and I appreciate you. Thank you. practice.